tonight on Arena. Writer David Quinn on updating a modest proposal to contemporary Ireland and Possession, Dublin Theatre of the Deaf's new opera based on a script by Teresa Deeby. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena and you can watch the live stream on rte.ie forward slash arena. A modest proposal is a one-person satirical comedy based on the essay of the same name written by Jonathan Swift, first published anonymously in 1729. This version is set in a modern boardroom of a strategic government task force who have been assembled to deal with challenging social issues of our time. One of the most persistent and difficult of these ongoing issues is that of child poverty in Ireland, despite its being one of the world's richest economies. The play's character, Johnny, is a very convincing presenter who thinks he has cracked the problem but will the board agree with his modest proposal it'll be opening at the new theatre in Dublin next week Tuesday the 20th of February and with me in studio is the writer of the play David Quinn who is also one of the founding members of Punchbag Theatre Company I'm kind of astonished as I was reading the script today David just how it, it seemed to me how easily Jonathan Swift's A Modest Proposal could be transposed to contemporary Ireland remind us of the 1729 text yes. and what he said what he suggested so it was a pamphlet it was a nine page pamphlet and he suggested that to a solution a very mod, very uh, rational and modest solution to child poverty in Ireland at the time would be that the poor would sell their children to the rich as meat and then the the rich would eat the meat and it would become a delicacy. And he even suggested how they might cook that meat and all of the economic benefits mm. that would ensue from that. And the, the, the idea occurred to me when I, uh, well, I had read it years ago. It's, mm. it's possibly, I would contend, one of the greatest pieces of writing ever to emerge from anybody in this island. And the idea occurred to me when I went, I went on a tour of... Um, St. Patrick's Cathedral. Have you ever been to St. Patrick's Cathedral? Yes, yeah. Fabulous place. And it's a place I pass by all the time. I went in and then got a sense of who Jonathan Swift was by by standing there and then realised that while he was preaching to the great and good of Dublin at the time and all the wealthy, that right across the road, literally right across the road was the Liberties. And that was a poor area of Dublin. Yeah. So they were cheek by jowl. And I suppose if you were had that sort of dichotomy in your life, it would r- cause you to be angry and... Uh, and write something as savage as a modest proposal. Yeah, and and because it, it, as the modest proposal works in that seventeen twenty nine text, everything is so rational yeah. that it's very hard to pick a hole in his arguments. Exactly. Until we get to the point where, well, you you sell them, you kill them, and you eat them. Yeah. At that point, you kind of go, oh, yeah. I, I agreed with everything up until now. Now, how did you start, or when did you think this could fit? Contemporary Ireland in exactly in exactly the same way, right? Well, like it's walking on the streets of Dublin, um, walking on the streets of any Irish city, and you encounter huge amounts of poverty, cheek by jowl with uh, with an, an awful lot of wealth. And mm. because of my career, I, 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 uh, I in the meantime, since I've punched back the other days, I've been working in advertising. Uh, you know, you become very aware of the wealth that's in the country as well. And I thought it might be time to 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 represent this or a stage it. I don't think it's ever it's it was written as a pamphlet, not as a mm. play. And I thought let's create this as a play. I sat down. It came to me really quickly. Within I had it finished within a month, um, and I did it as a thought of it as like a presentation, a PowerPoint a, a, presentation. A pitch, yeah, yeah, a pitch. It's something that advertising people and consultants. Uh, do all the time. They come in. They say, "This we've got the solution to your marketing problem, to your this, you know, whatever problem it is." And they have the powerpoints, and they're convincing people. Think of Steve Jobs uh, selling the iPhone. You know, hmm. just a great stage presence. And it always struck me how theatrical that was. And I thought of it initially as a, an on-site specific piece where. The audience sat around the boardroom and they were the Being board. pitched at, literally. They were the board. They, yeah. had, they were the board of uh, what I call, what I, what I still call it, the strategic social 
improvement unit. I know, and and I love that the consultant who comes in is a member. Is a, a, a his a company is a strategic solutions agency. Yeah, all yeah. of those words just mm. you know they're they're very twenty first yeah. century words, but they say yeah. an awful lot, don't they? The, I mean, the, the thing that the thing that's, that the reason absolutely they do, but the reason that 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 modest proposal, the original modest proposal, stuck with me uh, is. When you finish, you said, "Did I just agree to cannibalism?" <laughs> you know. So, could you re, could you repackage it and sell that today? And and that's what. So, so this, this, the setup of the play is a presentation to the audience. Yeah. So Johnny and, uh, and uh, he, the 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 actor here is Jed Jed Murray, yeah. and it's my first time working with Jed, and he's a. a an, Great actor, a great salesman, great salesman. Because <laughs> that's what that's what's involved yeah, here. Yeah. He's basically selling this idea yeah. to the board. But how it starts out is very interesting, and I wondered about the the kind of statistics that you use in the opening section mm-hmm. of his presentation, yeah. where he goes through the reality yeah. of child poverty yeah. in, in this country. Tell me a little. Talk to me a little bit about those statistics, uh, how real they are, and where you got them from. Well, they're all readily available on public information sites. Um, you know, he. One of the, st- the stats we dug up is that it's a there's 140,000 children in poverty in Ireland today. That's if you picture it, it's that's bigger than Cork City. Hmm. Could you imagine everybody in Cork going to bed hungry and living in temporary accommodation? And so he 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 uses techniques like that. Um, tra- tragically with this production uh, I first wrote it s- six years ago and then it was to go on in 2020 but we know what happened then yeah. um, is in every draft I've had to update the numbers and the numbers just keep getting bigger and also the other number that keeps getting bigger is Ireland's if you Google this and I know you can Google it at home is uh, Ireland's the, Google the, the richest countries in the world and I first wrote it it was the fifth place then third, and today we're the wealth richest country in the world. And this now, is based on cap, cap, capital uh, GDP per capita, which yeah. I know is flawed, but it's still yeah. an international. Nevertheless, measure, it is an international. You, you're measure, not right? you're not making up the yeah. statistic. No, you're using that particular method exactly. of, of measuring wealth to make the statement that Correct. we are the richest. We are the richest country in the world, and we have 140,000 children in poverty tonight. Why? And you know, you you another one that you give us is emergency accommodation. Seven hundred and twenty-six children in emergency yeah. accommodation in, in two thousand and fourteen. You've had to update that yeah. as each new draft yeah. came along. Where's that today? Do you remember? It's over three thousand nine hundred. Yeah, and you know that like that's both saddening and, and shocking. Now, with the risk of turning this show into a, mm. a political, but I wonder to yeah. what extent was that in your mind? Did you actually think you know I need to, I actually need to say something about these social issues? In this in this play, I need to update it to the twenty first century for yeah. people to realise the economy and the society that we're living in and the things we're allowing happening happen by being quiet. Yeah, so, sorry. Yeah, it, it's and that 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 and that's why I thought the modest proposal was the perfect vehicle because we are getting hit over the head all the time by you know hardship stories and 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 stats and but. In that there's the structure of a modest proposal, where it is absolutely outrageous what he suge- what he suggests, and allow the audience to walk out of the theatre next week, uh, mm. thinking, did I did I just agree? You disagree to that, yeah. To, to, to eating children. It starts with his well, it doesn't. It starts with all of those statistics, and then he begins to kind of twist things around. And again, it struck me, wh- where did this language come to you from? Was it your time in advertising where he says? You know, we're thinking of poor children in the wrong way. We're thinking of them as a problem. Mm. We need to start thinking of them as an asset. That's right. Where where did they... Have you heard <laughs> this type of language being bandied well, about? Well, I mean, it is a satire, right? So, yeah, of course. I mean, yeah, I, I, yeah. It's not actually my view. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, yes, I have. I mean, in the great, wonderful world of, of marketing uh, and blue sky thinking and management speak, this sort of thing happens all the time. And there's a story that I use in the play to... to, to, to um, to illustrate that, which is the story of uh, Irish creameries used to make cheese and used to discard the whey until somebody real and used to have to pay somebody to take away the whey, which was a problem with ways a, ma- a byproduct of the manufacture of cheese, until somebody realised somewhere along the line that cheese was worth that the whey was worth money, and now the whey is a central ingredient in protein powder, and protein powder is a four billion 
euro industry in Ireland today. So that's how somebody saw something that Mm. was literally a waste product and turned it into an asset. Just using that as a, just use that as a nice little example, a you, parallel. And you go on, and you might you might expand on how you do that. You do this with a couple of things. You talk about a virtuous cycle. Yeah. Explain what a virtuous cycle is. Is this a Swiftian idea? No, no, no. no it's a, a management speak. <laughs> management speak. Okay. So give us Ma- management speak is full of very colourful terminology, Sean. Uh, so if a virtual cycle is where one benefit feeds feeds into another benefit. Uh, so you know the, the this proposal would lead to savings. The savings would lead to uh, j- 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 better psychological benefits, financial benefits, jobs. Politicians love jobs. Increase in house prices because the Irish middle class—that's the thing they care about most—is house prices. Um, you know, from the benefits you could you could. And so in advertising, we're t- t- you know the thing is to sell the benefit, sell sell the sizzle, not the sausage, right? And not <laughs> not focus on what it's made from, but focus on what you could get out of it. And so, if you were to participate in this scheme, you could get a a, a, a deposit on a nice house in Dublin, two holidays per year, a new crossover SUV every two years. Yeah. You know, so yeah, because the way you go about it is, you say, well, let's look at the situation here. So these poor children are there. We need to subsidise them now. If we sell them on, we don't need to subsidise them anymore. If they, the family sells them, yeah. On. If, they, if the family sells them on, mm. we don't need to subsidise those children anymore. Correct. Yeah. Uh, and not only that, as a result of that, the family who would be living in poverty and in terrible situations are taken out of poverty. So our statistics are wiped away. Mm-hmm. We have no poverty anymore. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and at the end, he concludes that, you know, just think about this, you know, Ireland, the first country in the world to uh, solve the problem of child poverty and the international mm. media, you know, Ireland isn't first. He concludes that Ireland only is first in the world in four, four areas at the moment. That's hurting in football, obviously. There's nobody else plays that. The Eurovision, <laughs> banking bailouts and clerical paedophilia and that, that, in that way you've charged the most mm. people in that area. So this would be another world first for Ireland. And, you know, the Irish media and the Irish public love world firsts. We're the first country to defeat child poverty. And then he, 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 he speculates, could we apply this to other areas, other social issues? Yeah, I, I, another thing that struck me about it and, you know, I, being mindful of the fact that you do want to speak to your advertising colleagues yes, uh, tomorrow when, morning. when you meet them <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, along the way. Yeah. But you, you look at the type of questions you can ask in research. Yeah. Because the other thing that Johnny does is he, he says, we ask the following questions. Yes. You know, like questions, do you want to eradicate child poverty? Well, of course, the answer yeah. to that is yes. Yes, yeah, you know. of course it is, yes. So give us the sort of questions that he asks and how he can then draw draw conclusions from the answers he gets. Yeah, so he, like most of us are in the media and not, not I mean, not just in the marketing business, it's all, all sorts of business where, the, where you do re- research and, and the newspapers are full of them on every weekend. Uh, they he he poses like do you want to end child poverty? Uh, would you if this was easy to do? Would you participate? And of course, yes, I would. If it was available from a local local supermarket, would you would you purchase it? And that's <laughs> so the yes, that's yes, the meat yes. that is made from the children yeah. that have been sold. He never uses the word cannibalism, yeah. or never would be so distasteful to say eat the children or anything like that. It's just all let the let the let the audience make those conclusions yeah. themselves. Another thing that struck me about the script was, you know, that here we are in, in, you don't necessarily, here we are in 2024, you don't necessarily get stuck into the online versions that might come, might appear of, of a modest proposal. This is actually a, a real life guy yeah. pitching to a real life board yeah. with with real ideas uh, in inverted a, commas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, and I mean, it's, it's, an, it's an absurd idea. Uh, it's a savage idea, um, and and so it's 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 borrowing from from the best, you know. To, and, and it was a great. It was it always stuck with me ever since I read it in college. Uh, what a savage piece of writing it was, and and it, and really at its heart, it's angry, mm. you know. But but being angry and and castigating an audience, you know, that you know, it only works for five minutes and makes for a bad theatre. But <laughs> bringing them along and saying. 
well, what if we, you know, would you agree to this and agree to this? And, you know, everything, every, that was the, the strength of the original Swift uh, pamphlet was mm. everything was rational yeah. and modest and, you know... Uh, uh, so each tiny little step, step. didn't seem like a, a exactly. problem, but Correct. when you get to the end the product, end. there's a major... And you look back and you say... <laughs> yeah. You, you mentioned, I mentioned Punchbag Theatre Company yeah. and, and, you know, that you were involved in the setting up of that. I yeah. think this is the first play that you've done in 27 years. 27 is, years, yeah. Sean, I'm making my comeback to the, to yeah. the theatre. Why, what, what happened that brought you back to theatre at this point? Well, I, I think it's something that's... All, that I've always had a big interest in and it's kind of, you know, once it's in your blood, you can't really, mm. uh, you know, get rid of it. I, ever since Punchbag finished, I uh, used to go to the theatre all the time. I met you there one evening um, and I started writing plays. I never, this is my my my, my debut mm. as a playwright. Previously in Punchbag, I was a director, producer uh, and sometimes, sometimes performer. Um, so, this was this is about the fourth or fifth play that I've written, and the others were all big casts and many scenes. So this one is one actor, and thankfully, initially the Glens Art Centre in a big shout out to them yeah. in Manor Hamilton that liked it and took it and said they want to produce it, and then they, it was a co-production with the the new theatre in Temple Bar. So that's how it's coming about. And coming from the world of advertising, where let's face it, there's a few more bob involved, yeah, a lot a more, more money involved yeah. than there would be in the average theatre company yeah. and in the average theatre show. Do you is there something about the power of theatre that has kind of tickled you in a way? The power of advertising is well is well known as well. Has has something touched you in a new way after 25 years or a quarter of a century in the advertising industry. So do you mean with the theatre? Yeah. Well, it's like when we did the read-through, I mean, nobody, with any artist or even with any advertising agency, mm. when they, they pitch a script and they, they shoot it, a TV ad, for instance, they shoot it, they don't know if it works. Really, they don't know if it works, despite what they tell the client and everything, until <laughs> they see the first edit of it or any, any movie maker. And likewise, the playwright, you you don't know if it works until you see somebody stand on a stage and perform it. And in December last, when Jed got up on the stage and performed it, I was like, this works. Mm. So uh, the, the question, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's always been there. It really, really tickles me. There's a, there's, a, there's a big crossover between advertising and 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 the theatre, a lot of uh, I, I sometimes call the advertising industry the second arts council because it funds uh, actors doing voiceovers and doing which which uh, and performances and ads which which sometimes can be lucrative and help them along. Mm. Um, and there's uh, there is a there's a lot of people in um, advertising who have secretly want to be. Uh, filmmakers or poets or there's I, I saw a, f uh, a, fa a lecture about speech about 10 years ago uh, with Salman Rushdie the IAPI uh, IAPI is the Institute of Advertising Practitioners yeah. in Ireland and they had him over and he gave just to talk about his, his advertising career and he talked about his advertising career and how he at the same time wrote Midnight's Children and then when he went to the Booker Prize and he won he went down backstage and there was a fax from his creative director, his boss, to say, thank God one of us escaped. Oh, Which shows that everybody in the business harbours something or other. Right. Well, listen, thanks for coming in to us, David. And it certainly is amazing that 1729, a, a pamphlet written yeah. then, can speak so loudly in 2024. For sure. David Quinn telling us about the upcoming play, A Modest Proposal. It'll be opening at the New Theatre in Dublin next week, Tuesday the 20th of February. Runs through until March the 2nd and full information on thenewtheatre.com. Next week, the artist Amanda Coogan, composer Linda Buckley and the Dublin Theatre of the Deaf collaborate to stage a new opera called Possession. The opera is based on a script by the Irish writer Theresa Devey, who herself was deaf, and it tells the story of Antoine as seen through the eyes of Queen Maeve. 
Irish Sign Language, Experimental Sonic and Vocal Composition will be used in the staging of Possession. If you want to see what we're doing here in studio, you can watch the live stream on rte.ie because with me in studio this evening, the Director and Designer of Possession, Amanda Coogan, and the Artistic Director of Dublin Theatre of the Deaf, Leanne Quigley. We are also joined by two interpreters, Caroline O'Leary, who will voice Leanne's signs for all of us listening and for me to understand what Leanne is saying. And then uh, Elia Chikcha, whose name I have just said terribly wrongly, who who will say in English to me what Leanne is signing in Irish Sign Language. You're all very welcome. And the only bit I can manage, Leanne, is quite simply this, which I know means hello. (laughs) So I'm getting hello back from Leanne. Um, you heard about Teresa Devi's script. I think it was via via um, Chris Morash. Tell me about that that moment, if you would, Leanne. Certainly. Ten years ago, I went to Trinity College. They were having a series of lectures, and it was around arts, culture, and literature around disability. And Chris Morash was there giving a presentation and spoke about Teresa Devi and mentioned she was deaf, and my mind just exploded that we had an early 20th century deaf person writing plays. And I said, that's it. I've got to find out more about this person. So I did a lot of research. And the first script I read was the one of the King of Spain's daughter. I read that. And from then on, I've been literally obsessed researching about her all the time. And was at it, that time, I didn't know enough about her, but now my knowledge has grown. And was there something specific in the writings of Teresa Devi that you saw when you read it, Leanne, that spoke directly to you and that you thought would speak directly to, to those who were involved in Dublin Theatre of the Deaf? Yes. Yes. In the King of Spain's Daughter script and the other script, script, which was written in the 1930s, if you think back to that time, we were a new state. Ireland had just been, we've come out, the World War One was over and Teresa Devi was quite the rebel, being a woman who had been experienced oppression at that time. And myself as a deaf person working with Dublin Deaf Theatre, you know, but we have a phenomenon in Ireland where we have men and women signs in ISL, but the women's signs were pretty much discriminated against. So when deaf women left school, St. Mary's, and then we saw how the men signed in St. Joseph's, once they finished their education and went out and started to mix with each other, the women assimilated to using the men's signs and women's signs started to kind of disappear. So I felt the need within that script that I read, written by Teresa Devi, to embrace that and incorporate women's signs back into theatre. I could, the, the culture of Ireland at the time, there were so many meanings, so many parallels mm. that I wanted to embrace. That is extraordinary that the gender divide was there even in Irish Sign Language. And I suppose, Amanda Coogan, you are, you, both your parents used Irish Sign Language. Did they have, did your mother have to adjust her sign language or was that well done by the time you were born? Yeah, no, not not in my mother's case, but my my mother did her master's on women's signs, actually, really, really interestingly. But uh, the generation before that, Mm. who would have been like my deaf granny and granddad, so within the community, they're like my granny and granddad, certainly... They had a different divide. I mean, it's one of uh, a researcher from L.A. uh, came over when I was very young, actually, and started studying it and called it the most gendered language she'd ever come across in the world. I mean, it's phenomenal. It was communication between the two sexes was very, very different. Yeah. But what happened was when uh, women joined with men, they changed their signs to what we'd call Normal ISL. I know right. we're yeah. even it, okay. it's even within my, you know, the vocabulary of it and women's signs and the women's signs. What we're trying to, as as Leanne would say, reclaim or remember uh, are so radically different. We have this beautiful example of the colour white. I can give you an example here. Leanne is saying one particular sign that we're using yeah. in the production of possession is for the colour white. So I'm demonstrating to you now the sign, ISL sign for white is on the neck. But in women's signs back then, the sign for white was on the palm of their hand because at that time, women wore white gloves very formally to be ladylike. 
And that was a, how, a different representation of how the colour white was seen between men and women. So an absolutely huge difference just in terms of the word is yeah, what it is. How, yeah, how the concept of the colour white mm. is articulated, absolutely. Hardly surprising then, Leanne, that you should want to uh, see and hear the story of the town through the eyes of Queen Maeve, because I'm guessing that's usually a very gendered story as well, although Queen Maeve is a very powerful woman. Mm-hmm. Indeed, yeah, correct. Teresa Devi, when she the script based on the town, written through by a woman, and in mythology, usually was written with a male perspective. So now it's been written through Queen Maeve's eyes, and has a strong focus on women. So we want to incorporate women's signs into that and create that parallel and show the sign variations that existed between men and women. And just for those who are listening who, who maybe aren't watching uh, on the live stream, it really is very interesting to see that the, the, Caroline is the voice that we're hearing, Clarion O'Leary, and she is uh, voicing the signs that Leanne Quigley is is making for us and therefore making it comprehensible to me and to all of, all of those listening. So bringing that then, Amanda, onto an operatic stage again, Opera, yeah. not necessarily an art form that we would associate with theatre of the deaf. Yeah, I mean, it's really exciting. It's really uh, a magnificent collaboration between myself, a Dublin Theatre of the Deaf and Linda Buckley as well. And so what we did was, I mean, DV's script is three pages. It's never been produced before. Mm. It is, uh, I found it in the arc, the Teresa DV archive in Maynooth. And this is all thanks to the brilliant work of Chris Morash and Jonathan Bank in The Mint. And for me personally, through the brilliant research of Leanne Quigley, the artistic director of the Dublin Theatre of the Deaf, who, who opened my eyes to DV. And we found possession, unproduced, treatment for a ballet is what she called it. And I actually thought it would be really important to get Devi's actual words there somewhere. Mm. So I'm thinking ballet russe, I want to make a Stravinsky piece of work, you know, (laughs) of course I do. Um, But I thought, actually, we need to bring back in Devi's words. And so Linda Buckley has taken some of those words and written arias to it. And then further, the Dublin Theatre of the Deaf and myself have made eight what we call ISL poems. So these poems are the choreographic structure of this opera. So if we're attending, what we will see are the these poems being signed for us as the ballet happens and the music is heard. It, well, they are the ballet. Mm. If it, uh, but in part of the arias, then Linda has written in some of Devi's words. For example, one of the arias is spreading my draped arms as wings. Yeah, what a brilliant, what a brilliant it's, poetic Isn't it magnificent? I think that's the piece that we have actually uh, that, that you brought in for us. So it's the music of Linda Buckley. And who are the singers here then? Um, uh, Suzanne Savage is the uh, beautiful uh, uh, singer. And I think Linda maybe joins mm, maybe her. In, but in, in the yeah. So let's have a little uh, listen to part of Linda Buckley's music for Possession.
absolutely beautiful both to listen and see those who were watching on the live stream I hope saw that as we were listening to that piece Linda uh, Amanda and uh, Ella were were all signing the, the poems that were going and I see now why what a stupid question I asked about the body the, <laughs> po- the poems themselves are the body are the, the signing choreography of, yeah. exactly I mean it's a it's a funky one but an ISL poem is this beautiful physical and visual manif- mm. manifestation I mean sign language is a manual visual language that I, I say it's kind of like the opposite to Irish dancing because we use the top of the body <laughs> not the bottom of the body um, but yeah it is all about these great gestures mm. these great movements and of course you know we're we're I suppose setting up all of these po- in 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 our vocabulary, they're ISL poems. If we were looking at it from a dance perspective, they might be called choreography. Yeah. But I have the fears as a performance artist. <laughs> I can't possibly call myself a choreographer. Um, but they are very physical movements. Yeah. Let me ask Linda about that, actually, Linda, because uh, I wonder, obviously, if you're holding a conversation with somebody in Irish Sign Language, you know, pass me the butter or how are you today? It's very it's just normal conversational type of feel to it. How different is the feeling when you're performing? Because it, it is very gestural what you just performed to, to the piece of music that yes. we heard. It's different from conversation. How does it yes, feel for you? It's totally different. As you've watched us sign there, our performance, it becomes an art form, a visual art form. So people may think of coming to the production next week that they're just going to see ISL and it's only for people who can understand ISL. It isn't because it's a visual communication using the medium of ISL, as you've just seen us perform here in front of you. So you can see how visually attractive that mm. is looking at body movement and, and so one on. other question on that emotionally um, inside you how different is the emotion performing that than it is holding an ISL you know regular conversation yeah you were correct like there is more emotion in it as you can see we're using bigger movements we're showing more emotion like other people feel people singing, feel hearing people would feel and see. But now you can still feel the same amount of emotion by watching somebody demonstrate through body gestures and movement of ISL. And it becomes as emotionally powerful as it is to listen to music. So I'm so looking forward to next week to showing this in our performance. Yeah, I can I can, I can under, totally and fully understand why, Amanda. And yeah, for me, I mean, I, I, and myself and Leanne, I, I suppose, and the Dublin Theatre of the Deaf, it's the kind of... What we are so excited to collaborate on is the creative potential of ISL and that you expand it. You know, I suppose the way we articulate ISL is like we're saying things mm. in a grand way that you might well, like you might as the piece it. of music, the, the piece of music stretches out the spoken word. Exactly. And singing. so we're stretching out these beautiful particles of vocabulary and so it I suppose becomes dance maybe but I I think the excitement for us is that creative potential in sign language. Uh, has it, was there fragments of this done or were you, uh, was it in development? Part of it was, I think, performed in the Hugh Lane Gallery as part of the Solidarity, or, and I beg your pardon, at the Solidarity with Ukraine event at the Abbey. Absolutely. So I, 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 we had it tucked, tucked, tucked in the studio and trying to uh, niggle at it, I suppose, for uh, nearly two years, nearly three mm. years. We got the great um, invitation from Derek O'Connor to join the Solidarity for Ukraine uh, event that happened in the Abbey is it two years ago? God bless us. And actually Leanne linked up with the Ukrainian Theatre of the Deaf and they gave us an anti-war poem. And I I, I might have dropped out there Possession is an anti-war play. Yeah. Uh, written, you know, Maeve sees, calls the war and then sees the devastation of war over the two bulls. Um, and so that really was the ignition for us to go, actually, this we can put part of this into possession. We developed a little bit further and we showed a segment of it then in the Hugh Lane Gallery uh, last year. 
and we showed another part of it. We did an awful lot of development work with the um, Southeastern Technological University where two of their lecturers in the theatre department, Una Keeley and Kate McCarthy, are DV experts. Because right. Devi, of course, was Waterford. So we did a lot of work down there and we also showed a little bit in their Imagine Festival. So, it, so it, it's had little outings. Now it's, and now, now it's we're gathering formed, everything and the whole production is going well, on. Well, very best of luck to all of you and, and particularly uh, to you, Leanne, and all of those uh, members of the company who will be performing as part of next week's uh, production. It uh, sounds astonishing. And I listen, you're, you're great to have us and it's such an exciting thing to have deaf artists on the radio, Sean. Well, there you Divi go. changed to writing for radio in her time, so it feels it feels like a we're in the f- moment, the DV moment. <laughs> yes. Thanks well, a million, Theresa DV, quite the woman, and I'm I'm looking forward to more productions from Dublin Theatre of the Deaf and you, Leanne, uh, in Thank and around so Theresa DV's mu- uh, writing. Possession, the opera based on Theresa DV's unpublished script, a collaboration with the artist Amanda Coogan, composer Linda Buckley, and the Dublin Theatre of the Deaf's Leanne Quigley will be staged at the Project Arts Centre. Space upstairs from the February the 21st through until the 24th. Full details on projectartcentre.ie. My thanks to Leanne, to Amanda, uh, Leanne Quigley and Amanda Coogan for joining us tonight and in particular to our two interpreters, Ella and Katrina, or and Ella and Caroline, I do beg your pardon for, for doing it all for us. And I'd say thank you to all of you as well. And joining me now in studio is conductor Killian Farrell. Killian is currently serving as general music as general musical director of the Stats Theatre Menningen in Germany. Originally from Dublin, Killian's journey from Dublin's Palestrina Choir to leading orchestras across Europe has been marked by a diverse repertoire and collaborations with esteemed musicians. His upcoming concert with the National Symphony Orchestra will feature works by Charles Villiers Stanford, Antonin Dvorak and Ida Boyle. It promises to be an exploration of both familiar and lesser known pieces and delighted to have Killian with me in studio this morning. Uh, this, this morning, it's this evening, uh, Sean. It's just been evening all evening. Kelly, before we get into this upcoming concert, tell me about um, the conducting fellow at Tanglewood Music Centre in 2019. I, I went to Tanglewood once and it was one of the most amazing musical experiences I have ever had. It's really a wonderful place and it's been especially uh, in the media recently because of the the wonderful Leonard Bernstein film. Mm. A lot of that was shot in Tanglewood and Tanglewood, It's kind of upstate um, Upstate Massachusetts yeah. and it's the summer home of the Boston Symphony Orchestra so it's where they move out to for the summer and where they've spent the last 80 years educating conductors and musicians and um, I have to say watching the Maestro film that was uh, really a, a very nice reminiscence of time there. I think it's one of the only places in the world where you can sit as a young musician at a table and have lunch with René Fleming and Yo-Yo Ma. It's a, a very special place. Yeah and even as an audience member there that was one of the things that struck me there is this sense of because it's like a big kind of electric picnic for classical music everybody's in this big tented village essentially and everybody's walking around because you're miles away from everywhere I my parents came to one of our last concerts and my mum said to me Gillian was that John Williams in the row in front and I said of course it was (laughs) this is where he spends his summer and I think having that that immediacy to such Mm. wonderful artists and such a mix of people is, is really something extraordinary when you were with the Palestrina Choir, did you ever foresee that that was where your musical journey might bring you? No, but I, I think the same thing. I, I loved singing as a boy and I, I still love making music now. And I think yeah, that that connection's been there. Yeah, all, all part of the same continuum. Let's talk a little bit then about uh, the, the, the works that you're going to uh, be performing at this uh, upcoming concert with the National Symphony Orchestra. Charles Villiers Stanford the debate as to whether he is an Irish composer or not an Irish composer. Where do you stand on that? I think he's certainly an Irish composer. And actually, Finneen Collins, who's our soloist for Mm. Friday night's concert, and I, we share a connection with Stanford. We we both had, in Finneen's case, a neighbour, but um, he was a singing teacher called Ken Shedderd, who had a huge love of Stanford and introduced us both to this piece. And uh, Ken Shedderd always said that if the John Field Room of the concert hall was the John Field Room, the main auditorium should be the Charles Villiers Stanford Hall. And I think that's a very fair assessment. Well, if you even think of it in terms that I'm thinking of this piano concerto, the piano concerto number two is what Finning will be playing uh, at the concert. John Field, we think of nice, delicate little nocturnes and small solo piano pieces for the most part. I know there's some orchestral work there as well, but that's what most people will think of. 
Charles Villiers Stanford and the Piano Concerto Number no. 2, he doesn't do small. No, it's a huge, romantic, passionate work and incredibly difficult to play with a wonderful orchestral accompaniment and I, it promises really a thrilling listen to all. All right, well, let, let's have a little a listen to a section of the opening movement from that Piano Concerto Number no. 2 in C minor and it is Finney himself who is playing here. That is the opening of the Piano Concerto Number no. 2 in C minor of Charles Villiers Stanford's, one of the pieces that will be performed by the National Symphony Orchestra at their concert on Friday the 16th in the National Concert Hall with Killian Farrell conducting, who's with me in studio this evening. Finning Collins was the, the composer. And I was just asking, asking our sound engineers who were listening, how much have we listened to there? And it's about two minutes. In that two minutes, and that's the opening movement, so there's no time to, well, the orchestra will kind of play a little bit, Finian, and then you'll come in and you'll, you know, you'll eventually get to the big bits. It's right from the very start that, that Stanford is asking a lot from the pianist. It's a very full-on piece. And actually, if you know some piano concertos, like Rachmaninoff's second piano concerto, Stanford had actually conducted the premiere of that piece about eight years beforehand with Rachmaninoff himself playing. And I think you can tell how inspired he was by this sort of incredibly dynamic pianism. And I think he tried to write a lot of that into this piano yeah, concerto. Is, is, is Rachmaninoff's second piano concerto in C minor as well? It, also, it yeah, is. So and it opens in a very similar way. Yeah, and, and it, we were talking to Asim Besimbayev, who was, uh, who was playing that concerto uh, a couple of weeks back in the National Concert Hall uh, as well and it, what struck me about it was was the size of it but you hear little twinges in this in the Stanford that seem to echo the, the melodic nature of, of uh, Rachmaninoff. Absolutely. I think he really saw a model that worked and I, I think he took it and made it his own. And does he do the same in the slow movement? Does he break our hearts? He does. The slow movement is absolutely wonderful. And um, I, it's, I think Stanford has some, sometimes a difficult reputation because, you know, he was a composer writing in England at that time. And mm. Perhaps he didn't always have the most original ideas, but I think this piece is really one of his great masterpieces. Right. Okay. So that that will be the um, in, in the opening ha- in the opening part of the concert. The other piece, and I suppose this is uh, Ina Boyle. We were talking about Teresa Devi in the previous item. You know, a forgotten playwright. Ina Boyle has she suffered from being the forgotten composer or a forgotten composer, or has that been has her reputation kind of been brought more into the light in recent times? I think a lot has been done to improve it, and partly through the National Symphony Orchestra and their programming, um, also some wonderful recordings done by Prunchis Odin, I think in the seventies and the eighties. I think her work is is sort of well respected, and but I must say this piece, the Magic Harp, is based on a wonderful story, a wonderful poem. And it's a it's a very special piece, very atmospheric, and one can really hear a sort of old Ireland, a very primeval forest. Yes, uh, the Bournemouth Symphony Orchestra is the recording that we have, and we're just going to hear. It's a nine minute, but it's kind of like an overture, it's like yeah. a, a symphonic poem, I suppose, in some ways, is what we have here. Let's have a listen to the opening section.
And off she goes again. She she's one that's that's Aina Boyle's uh, the magic harp in a performance by the Bournemouth Symphony Orchestra. Another of the pieces that Killian Farrell will conduct the National Symphony Orchestra in on February the sixteenth. Um, she she's one for the big the big melodramatic gesture. I think Killian. Yes, and I think one can hear the colour and the effect was really to the fore in this piece. Sweeping melody really wonderful harmonies and uh, as we were just discussing the harp is really to the fore you know she brings this instrument to the front of the orchestra and did she does she uh, does she write well for the harp Do yes you, very well for the harp it's very idiomatic yeah and and it has, I suppose it has that irish feel i should have asked you by the way when when, I, when we were talking about the piano concerto because you were a pianist yourself as well that is another of the strings to your bow if i'm not mixing my metaphors there um when it comes to uh, conducting a piano concerto with a soloist. Now, granted, it's Finney Collins, so you know you're in more than safe hands. But what's the balance there? You, can you maybe have an insight into it in a way that a non-pianistic conductor wouldn't have? I have to say, conducting piano concertos, I think, are the hardest concertos to conduct. Why is that? Um, because most pianists aren't quite like Finney Collins. And um, a lot of pianists um, have very wonderful individual interpretations. But I think bringing that together with an orchestra can sometimes be a challenge. So it's a little tug of war between the conductor and the soloist oh, by I, times, is it? I, I think it is, yeah. And how does the conductor win through there? I I don't think it should be about winning, but I think what we can do is support the soloist in their ideas to, to find the best solution. And to be honest, as long as it's together at the end of the day, that's the most important thing. How long did you spend in the diplomatic corps? Well, I, I sometimes I can't tell the difference between being a conductor and being in the diplomatic corps. <laughs> um, let us move on to what would be then the second half of the concert and the, and the big section of the concert, which is uh, Dvorak and his Symphony Number no. Five. We're we're ahead of his time in the Americas, I think, with with this particular piece, aren't we? Yes, this was uh, written when he was still quite a young composer, eighteen seventy five, and. Um, it was sort of the first symphony where he really found his own voice. The thing I find amazing is that this piece is not done more. Um, I couldn't find that the symphony orchestra played it recently. Mm. And um, the reason I wanted to do it, I, I have this, as you were mentioning, I work in Meiningen now in the orchestra in Germany. And it's an orchestra with a lot of tradition and history. And um, Hans von Bülow, who was one of my predecessors, this piece was actually dedicated to him in the same year that Tchaikovsky dedicated his first piano concerto to Hans von Bülow. And the two composers knew each other and the pieces have a certain similarity. And when I when I go to other orchestras, I try to bring a little piece of mining in with me. Like when I'm in Germany, I try to bring a little piece of Irish music there as well. Yes, yeah. So this is this is a touch of that. Dvorak himself, obviously a bohemian in the sense of from Bohemia rather than, you know, a little bit wild in exactly. spirit. But the wildness and spirit is certainly there, as we will hear in this uh, opening section of the Symphony Number no. 5 in F major. off he's going into a, a, in, in a new direction that's the opening section of the first movement from the Symphony Number no. 5 of Antonin Dvorak suitably enough played by the Czech Philharmonic Orchestra in the recording that we just heard there Killian Farrell will be conducting the National Symphony Orchestra in a performance of that symphony on Friday evening it, it struck me as we were listening even to that opening section how much it does 
Dvorak depend on the folk music, uh, Czech folk music and Bohemian folk music in terms of this symphony? Because it's there in from the New World in the Ninth Symphony, the famous one. And there's always a debate, is that American or is it Bohemian? There's a mixture of the two there. How much Bohemian music is here in this Fifth Symphony? Every movement has themes from this, this Bohemian folk tradition. And it's not just the themes, it's also the rhythm. There's a, a dance rhythm in every movement that sort of propels the piece along. Mm. And the remarkable thing about this symphony is that the one motif that comes at the very beginning of the piece is heard in every movement. And that also gives it the whole thing, a, even if you don't realise it when you're listening to it, there's something so structural about it and something so attractive because one hears the same motif come back again and again. Yeah, and, and that's that melody that we heard it, it stated in the beginning and it is thrown around across all the instruments in the orchestra. But am I right in thinking that Dvorak had a particular fancy for the woodwinds when it came to those dance tunes and those uh, folk songs. He absolutely did. And I think the symphony in particular is like a love letter to his favourite instrument, the oboe, because the oboe has all the most wonderful themes um, and he always gets, he or she always gets the first go. The other instruments might copy it later, <laughs> but it's always the oboe that introduces it first. Yeah, and that, I suppose, if you, well, it's, it's, I was going to say the, the famous um, yeah, um, slow movement from the Ninth Symphony, but it's the core anglais, which well, is, of course, same, yeah. the big oboe. The big oboe, exactly. <laughs> I suppose yeah. we could, we we could refer to that as. Um, it sounds like a fascinating concert. Are you off back to Germany then when that finishes? Is yeah, that the I go band? back on, on Monday. And is that, how long will that um, job be there or do you know or is it a, a, a limited thing? I'm there for the next three years. Right. Uh, but you'll be back and forth as well. Yes, I certainly hope so. Yeah, well, Killian, great. And thanks for coming in to us this evening. Thank you for that having me. That is Killian Farland. Killian, as I said, will be conducting the National Symphony Orchestra this Friday the 16th at the National Concert Hall. And indeed, the following day, the Saturday the 17th at the Seto Arena. That's the second mention of the uh, Southeastern Technological University we've had tonight as well. The Seto Arena in Waterford. And you can get full details on those concerts uh, on nch.ie and garterlane.ie and that is our lot for this Wednesday evening or is it Tuesday I think it's only Tuesday yes because it's Pancake Tuesday it's Tuesday evening um, uh, Paula Shields was the researcher Ollie Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator Ashton Grufferty was on sound this evening and tonight's programme produced by Kay Sheehy I will talk to you tomorrow Wednesday evening here on RTE Radio 1 and John Crean will be with you after the news